0: I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Freeville author Rachel Dickinson. Her new collection, The Loneliest Places, is a heartbreaking exploration of grief and loss that she experienced after her son's suicide. As a content note, my conversation with Rachel focuses very much on the suicide of her son, it contains details that may be upsetting to some listeners. Rachel, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Oh, Crystal, thank you so much for having me.
0: I'd like to start and talk a little bit about your son before his suicide. Will you tell us a little bit about Jack?
1: Jack was one of these toe-headed little boys who it looked like the light just shone on him all the time. He was enormously gifted in terms of music and art and it turned out mathematics as he started going through school but he was also one of those kids that I think teachers had written down and passed this note forward to the next grade saying this one is a handful he didn't like to sit in his seat he really was full of beans um liked to talk to the person next to him And at one point I took him to a uh, psychological therapist who also did um, educational testing because I was trying to figure out what the heck was going on with this kid. And it turned out he had an IQ that was over 150. So he just was processing stuff very differently from everyone else in the class. And that both made me feel relieved and anxious for him as I started to read about these Smarty Pants kids. I kept thinking if he could make it into his 20s, he would be okay. And he was involved in everything at school. He was involved in music and in the plays and he was academically gifted and just was uh, had a number of friends, a lot of friends. And so I did not see this coming. But he had a dark side that he didn't really let me know about because he was a teenage boy. Why would he? Um, But I did start to realize he was abusing certain kinds of drugs, including over-the-counter medications like cough syrup. So I would rifle through his drawers to try to just get rid of anything I saw and just hoped he could make it through the hump. For some reason, I thought he was like I was when I was his age, where I experimented with all sorts of things, but I came out the other end.
0: He didn't. This collection of essays is about the aftermath of Jack's death, of the immeasurable grief that you found yourself lost in. And it's also about your journey out of that darkness to some degree. At what point did you know that you wanted to write this book? When
1: Jack died, I thought I will never write anything again. I felt paralyzed, but I had been a travel writer before that and had written for many magazines and had already written, I think, five books. So I was a writer. This is what I did. But as I sat paralyzed in this chair, this green chair that seemed to be like a little home for me, I started to write furious little bits and pieces of uh, little vignettes or scenarios. At one point, at what for one whole year, I wrote really bad poetry. And then I started to get serious about it and started to look at the things I had written and tried to make make them into essays and make sense out of these fragments.
0: Did you know then that you might publish it? Or was it really just working through what you were going through?
1: At first, it was just working through and trying to, I had never really written essays before. So it was trying to craft essays, I thought since I wasn't, didn't seem to be able to write anything else, I would just try to learn this new form and use this information that was so tender and frightening at the same time and try to see what I could do with it. And so as I started writing the essays and really as made them essays. And at first I had one, then I had five, then I had 10. I knew at that point, this is a book.
0: You write in the book, as you've just mentioned, that you spent a lot of time sitting in this green chair in the front room of your house. And, you know, sometimes you wouldn't leave the house for weeks, if not longer. And I thought it was interesting that green chair is actually capitalized in parts of your book, almost like it's Its own character. So was that intentional?
1: Yes, it was. The the same way I capitalized Pink House. We live in an enormous pink house. And these two things, the green chair and the pink house, were like these other entities to me and were recognized as such in my writing.
0: The pink house, um, your home, is where Jack died. Yes. And a lot of why you felt you had to get away was connected to him dying in that home. hmm
1: I desperately wanted to move right away. I didn't want to stay in this house at all, but it was a real touchstone for other people in my family. I think my husband was paralyzed into staying here. We had a 12-year-old daughter this was the only house she had ever lived in and I think moving her might have been more disruptive than keeping her here although I don't know why I felt that but at the moment it made sense so I sat in that green chair which was directly below Jack's bedroom where he had shot himself and I um I just ruminated and I watched thousands of hours of television, uh, including particularly British crime shows, where I think I was trying to solve the mystery of Jack's death.
0: And that's a, a common, I think, experience for people who are dealing with the aftermath of, of a suicide, mm-hmm. this trying to put the pieces together to try to say, what did I miss? What could I have done? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it, it really was and is. Do you still have the green chair? I do, but I moved it out of the front room and it actually is sitting on our front porch under a cloth because I can't bear to, you know, put it on the curb, which is where it belongs. um, So someone else can pick it up. I can't bear to quite let go of it yet. So it spent the summer on the front porch with me walking past and just kind of glancing over and looking at the little bit of the green chair that peeked out from underneath the cloth. So it's it's making its way out of the pink house and out of my life gradually.
0: Mm. In one of your essays, you, you write about this connection that we have with things mm. and mm-hmm. that Jack's things were in the attic at that point under a blue tarp. Mm-hmm. Are they still mm-hmm. there?
1: They're still there. I still, it's almost 11 years since he died. And I still have yet to walk up those stairs and look under that blue tarp. When I went to the Falkland Islands, five weeks after Jack died, Tim went into his room, Tim, my husband went into his room and took everything out and took it up into the attic and put it under that blue tarp. And repainted the room and had intentions of turning it into like a music room but no one could bear to go into it so it's a room with a closed door no one goes into it I don't know what's in there and I don't know what's under the blue tarp do you think you'll ever look I have I'm getting closer because uh, you know it's mundane things like his physics homework, his calculus homework, books he was reading, um, and and yet I also think there are mysteries there that I have to really be ready to uncover. And you know, I don't know what writings he did. I, I just couldn't bear to look, and when, and that was intentional because when I started writing these essays. I started thinking I was going to be writing about the mystery of Jack. Who was Jack? I was going to talk to all of his friends and his teachers. And then I thought these, these people went through the same kind of trauma I did. I don't want to prick that balloon. I, I just don't want to go there with them. And I decided that this book was not indeed about Jack. It was about me. And it wasn't really about other people in the family. The only person I could really speak about was myself and my reaction to what was going on in my life and both before and after Jack.
0: When I was reading this, I wrote down a few words that I thought kind of the emotional message that I was picking up from this. And two in particular, stood out for me, at least for the first half, I guess, of the essays, the first half of the book, Mm -hmm. um, anger and selfishness. Mm, Yes, I,
1: I realized, as I started really putting these essays together and trying to find an order, my editor at Three Hills Press, Michael McGandy, suggested that I Think of these essays in terms of rec- sides of record albums, which made total sense to me because they can be collected, the sides can be organized any way you want. It can be by, you know, p- pieces in the same key or ideas or mournful tone or upbeat music. And so it allowed me to step away from the just. Um, the day-to-day going through first this happened then that happened then that happened so I got away from that by doing the album size. but I also realized it is pretty much chronological when I looked at it and I was very angry and I felt very selfish through those first half of the that book and my and Michael McGandy said to me at one point you know, you're not a very sympathetic character, which both shocked me and, and I realized, yeah, I'm not. You're right. But this was who I am I, at that point. I was nothing other but angry and selfish.
0: It yeah. seems like, though, especially for people who are going through tragic loss like suicide in their families, that there is this kind of social urging to gloss over the anger that comes with that.
1: I actually decided when I thought about glossing, trying to make myself a more sympathetic character and glossing over the anger, I decided that was not truthful. And it, I wanted to write how I felt because I imagined other people felt the same way, whether they acknowledged it or not. This felt like a, a true response to what had happened to me
0: and to our family. You know, one of the things that we're told when we're grieving someone is that we have to find hope and move on. But you came to this realization that you weren't ready for hope.
1: I I started wondering about hope and what hope meant and why I seem to be so stuck in this place where I didn't feel hopeful. I couldn't see into the future. I didn't know what was going to happen. Hope in, hope really means being able to imagine yourself in the future. And I couldn't do that. So I saw, you know, I didn't feel hopeless. I just felt like there was no hope to be seen for me. And I knew I had to kind of grow into that and that i thought over time hope would start to come back so i was just waiting it out i think
0: as you mentioned you were a travel writer you are a travel writer and about five weeks after jack's death you left for the falkland islands why was going on that trip so important to you
1: um Jack died in February, and the previous October, I started talking to the uh, tourist board of the Falkland Islands. It was someplace i had always wanted to go, and uh, 2012 was going to be the 30th anniversary of the... Um, war between Argentina and the Falklands Islands. And we think of that as a silly little war, but it really wasn't. If you read about it, it was a devastating war for the people who lived on these islands. And so I found an assignment to write about this, to write about how were people either celebrating or memorializing this anniversary. So I managed to set up all the arrangements to go and stay there for about 10 days. And it was going to happen in March, which was at the very end of the season to be in the Falkland Islands, because of course their their summer is our winter and our winter is their summer. So I would be on that cusp season for them when most of the tourists were leaving So then the unthinkable happened when Jack killed himself and I sat in that green chair and I knew I had to escape. And so I had this thing already set up and I thought, I'm just going to do this. I am going to follow through with this. And I know that there were half of the people in my family were saying, that's absolutely crazy. And the other half were saying she needs to do it, let her do it. So, and I didn't listen to anyone. I only listened to myself and what I wanted to do and what I felt I needed to do. So I got on a plane and I just said, I can go to this place because it's a place that Jack has never been. And I set myself a rule saying that I can't go anywhere where Jack has been because then i will see him so if i go into the falkland islands where he has never been he will not be at the edges of my sight he will won't occupy my brain every moment
0: so i went what do you think might have happened if you hadn't been able to go
1: wow i you know i don't know crystal that's a really good question i it never occurred to me not to go um I imagine I would have, you know, in my head, I would have just turned into a big puddle and just melted into that chair um, and become catatonic. You know, I just couldn't imagine not leaving. And because travel writing was something I had done before, and it was something that was familiar to me, and it was something I always looked forward to and something that was able to kind of recharge my batteries, it just made sense that I would walk out of the house and get on a plane.
0: You write, and your writing in this essay intertwines your grief and Jack's suicide with the natural world, with these journeys that you took to escape. And you write that you had to be alone where no one knew you or what you were going through. Mm. But then We start to see a little bit more about your family, about being home, about your interactions. Was that a transition point for you in where you perhaps started to look forward again?
1: Yes, I think it was. And I also think as we move through the book, you see, we learn more about my family and about my ancestral home, which is Freeville, New York, and where my And Tompkins County, where my people have lived since the Revolutionary War, and I i have always been deeply um, entwined with this landscape, and so I started to write about that more, and write about um, my family history, including just my my parents and what it meant to be a child growing up here, what it meant to have both of my parents die. And so these became the stories that were kind of entwined with the Jack stories.
0: You really had difficulty in talking about Jack's death with your husband, with your daughters. And I found it very interesting to read those essays where you started to connect perhaps that inability to talk about it because your own family really didn't talk about those sorts of things Mm -hmm. and that connection that you made.
1: It was, it was shocking to me when I discovered that um, toward the very end of putting this book together. And of course I realized I hadn't included really any reactions from my daughters or my husband because, as you said, we did not talk about it. I wrote them each an email or a letter and said, would you write to me and give me your thoughts about Jack's death and how it affected you? And that email or letter really traumatized my daughters at that moment. And um, they all called up my my um, husband, their father, and they had a Zoom call and they talked about it and they talked about the fact that they couldn't answer this. And then they started to reveal that um, one reason they couldn't answer it was because I had been basically an absentee mother for the first two years after Jack died and they felt, uh, I I'm using this word, I don't know if they did, but I think they felt abandoned by me and that I had abandoned the family for those two years. And Tim became the one that held everything together. And when, so Tim summarized this in an email to me and wrote about their reactions. And I was stunned because I realized I had never realized that fact and I thought about it, and um, then I, for some reason, I was reminded of, of my mother and the fact that we never talked about anything that was hard, ever, ever. We might write about it, we, but we would never talk about it. So I was just doing what came naturally to me. I was just... Um, kind of imploding and I saw my mother do the same thing when my father left and they were getting divorced. She just imploded. She kept to herself and we were just kind of teenagers hoping she would come out of it at some point. So in fact, I had the same experience that my own children did and I had never put that together before I got that note from Tim.
0: But you also wrote an essay called Why I Stay. I'm wondering if you'll read that for us.
1: Yes, I will. Why I Stay. The days and nights are getting cooler, and I find I've fallen into a familiar pattern of lethargy mixed with ennui. I sit in my green chair and look around the front room and notice that all the books and surfaces have a visible layer of dust on them. I care, in that I noticed, but I don't care enough to do anything about it. I sit and look at a huge basket that holds all of the cards we received after Jack's death. I think I will want to read them again someday. In the middle of the night, I wake and start Googling medical malpractice and wrongful death. I read all the horror stories on each lawyer's website. I skip the man versus bus and man versus heavy equipment And zero in on medical malpractice. I read about hospitals maiming and killing patients as a result of human error. A slip of the knife, too much anesthesia, misdiagnosis, wrongful death in so many forms. I look at the settlement amounts 1 million, 6 million, 500,000 and I start building my case against every professional who ever interacted with Jack. I'd start with the elementary school teacher who made him sit in the hall half the time rather than deal with him. I didn't know that was happening because neither she nor Jack told me until spring when I visited the classroom and one little troublemaker of a girl pointed to a desk in the hall and said, do you know whose desk that is? In her sweetest voice, I looked at her in puzzlement. That's Jack's desk, she said. That teacher sent us a long, heartfelt note when Jack died, written, I presume, out of guilt. I'd build a case against his friends who knew he was abusing drugs but didn't reach out to an adult for advice. Then I'd have to forgive them in the end because they were just kids. And all of us had drug-abusing friends when we were growing up. I would never have snitched on them to their parents or our teachers. I also would not get much of a settlement from any of them. I wanted to drag his therapist into court and grill her about those months of sessions when she dealt with Jack the liar and Jack the trickster. I would zero in on her phone call with a psychiatric nurse at the hospital and ask her why she thought it would be okay for the hospital to let this lying, drug-addled boy with suicidal tendencies out of their sight. I would exile the psychiatrist the psychiatric nurse and the er doctors to siberia without a trial i would access their bank accounts for good measure i wouldn't want to hear what they had to say i saved the harshest judgment for tim and myself we didn't know what was going on with jack no parent can be excused for that monetary damages are not practical so our punishment is that we continue to live in the house where our boy shot himself. We have to look at the photographs of a happy, smiling, toe-headed lad on a swing, holding a fish, singing with the children's choir, walking along a path in the woods. We must live with the books he read and the artwork he created. We are sentenced to live with the faint echo of the sound of him singing and whistling. We are forbidden to take his clothes out of his bureau. Every part of me screams, get out, get out, get out. But I stay, and Tim stays. I deserve to live in this house. Dwelling here is just compensation for my regret, anguish, and love. Inside these walls, I listen to my son. I love him and judge myself. I still hear his voice, now just a whisper. When I no longer hear Jack, I hope I have the courage to leave.
0: You write, over time, I hope I will be able to sort this out. I hope I will be able to visit familiar places and live in the pink house where Jack died without dread, restlessness, and a constant desire to run away. Have you reached that place for yourself?
1: You know, I think I have. I When I finally put the collection of essays together, And I sat on the floor and I spread them all out and put them in the right order. These pieces of paper that held these words, I felt an enormous relief. I felt something really lifted from me. But then when the book came out, I felt that weird dread. I wanted to go back into the green chair. I wanted to drag it back into the house from the porch because I felt like all of a sudden people were I knew people were reading this story and first I didn't know how it would be received. And then I just thought it's bringing up all that Jack stuff again. And then just recently I've just tried to make peace with that. This is something I hope this, this little collection can help some people see that first grief is nonlinear. It takes the time it takes. You can go through all of these periods of being furious, of trying to forget things. But in the end, we have to just live with ourselves and save ourselves. That's the best we can do. And I hope people will give themselves a break. I don't think I did for a really long time, but I think I'm trying to do that now.
0: Rachel, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you, Crystal. I really appreciate you reaching out and letting me be on
0: your program. Rachel Dickinson's book, The Loneliest Places, is available now. If you are thinking about suicide or someone you love is in crisis, call the National Suicide Hotline for help. Just dial 988. Off the page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go off the page.